Hello, everyone. Welcome to Chosen by Committee, the podcast where Christopher, myself, Josh, and John read through every Pulitzer Prize winning play starting in 1918, so you don't have to, um, or maybe so you do. This week, we are reading the uh, illegitimate winner of the 1924 Pulitzer Prize, uh, Hellbent for Heaven by Hatcher, Hatcher Handley. Hatcher Hughes. Hatcher Hughes. Fucking great name. Uh, I'll give him that. Um, my name is Josh Heron. I am a third grade teacher and uh, was once a theater writer. Um, I'm joined by uh, Birthday Boy. Um, Hello. And clean shaven international man of mystery, Christopher Munden. Um, hello, hello, hello. And the always shirtless and even more always charming John Rosenberg. Hello. Um, and so I think before we should get begin, we should sort of uh, talk about the elephant in the room, which was that we are re- we read this play because of our um, our charge to read every Pulitzer Prize winning play. Um, since 1918, um, and this play did technically win the Pulitzer, but <laughs> that decision was not actually, I guess it wasn't chosen by committee in this, in this case. The right, committee so, chose something else. Right, so what happened? Because I didn't, I, I didn't look at it. I knew what happened, but I didn't know the, uh, the drama behind it. So does someone know what happened? Like vaguely, I'm gonna give you like a, I can give a Reader's Digest version. Um, I'm probably Christopher can help me out. I could tell uh, what is it? So uh, the committee, and it, uh, Christopher actually recently found a really, really interesting sort of essay in a book um, that I think we'll probably be referring to throughout the course of this. Um, but um, it, it's, it turns out, and this is not surprising, that every year or, or many years there's some contention. Like the essay talks about um, actually a couple of years ago, uh, Miss Lulu Bet was like, everyone's second choice favorite, but the first choices were too divergent. So they all agreed they could compromise on the second choice and they were happy with it. Um, But the committee agreed to that, you know, or- um, In 1923, Ice Bound won just two to one against the adding machine. Which I will say I'm, um, the adding machine was the first play that has even entered the conversation that I'd ever heard about before. I fucking, Love the adding machine. Um, well, the committee sorry, real disagreed. Quick. What happens at the end of the adding machine? I don't remember. It's like a socialist like parable. So probably oh, he man. like becomes a, a machine or, or gets killed by capitalism. Um, Centrist ca- candidate wins. Um, wah, wah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm wearing my Bernie Sanders shirt. You can't see um, nice. um, anyway, so this year, uh, I think unanimously, the committee decided to give um, the award to Philadelphia's own George Kelly. Um, uh, Kelly's play, The Show Off, which ended up having a pretty illustrious career as like four movies and a couple revivals. Um, 
but the award that year was hosted or run by Columbia University, maybe the School of Journalism, and they interceded, intercepted rather, and decided to give the award to a play written by one of their own faculty members, um, Hatcher Hughes. And it, I guess uh, Hellbent for Heaven had like run a couple nights on Broadway. I don't think it even had a full run. Um, no, it had a full run one. And it was selected by the board of the Pulitzer. So it was like, a, it, was so, a, it was shortlisted. Well, no, it was like, um, so the, the committee that was to select the um, Pulitzer Prize for Drama picked the George Kelly play, but someone on the advisory board of like the Pulitzers in general intervened. And so it wasn't like Columbia University, but it was like, you know, the larger Pulitzer Prize organization were like, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to um, give it to our friends at Columbia University who are kindly hosting them. I see, I see. That was very friendly of them. It was very friendly, yeah. Um, and it did cause uh, some changes in the Pulitzers, so they, they had like a whole new jury the following year. Um, and we'll see what that led to. Yeah, I'm excited about it. Um, I, I forgot, I was going to say earlier, um, another funny thing I learned from the article was, I think, Beyond the Horizon or maybe Anna Christie. Um, one of the people didn't see it and didn't read it. And was like, Fuck I didn't yeah. see it. I didn't read it. I know I'm not gonna like it. <laughs> um, I have no. <laughs> uh, but you guys do, so okay. Um. All right. So um. So illegitimate or not, it won the Pulitzer, and so we're here to talk about it. Um. So Hellbent for Heaven. Who wants to give the summary of this one? I think John just read it, didn't you, John? Yeah, John. I you... see you. Sh- I see you shaking your head. So John, someone else could do. Someone else could do the. Can do it for this one because this one. This one disgusted me. Really. I thought there um, was a fifty-fifty chance that you were gonna love it. <laughs> so let me. I guess I can try. Um, forget all the names. It takes place in a house in mountains of rural Carolina. North Carolina, I guess. Like in the Blue Ridge Mountains. There's a theater named after Hatcher Hughes in uh, North Carolina. That's nice. Yeah, that's nice. And it's in um, the Hunt family house. Um, uh, The parents, well, we're introduced to is it the grandfather, David, and um, the mother, Meg, and um, they are welcoming home their son, Sid, from the war, right? World War One. Yeah. yeah, and the dad yeah. is Matt. And the dad is Matt, right? And they employ a, um, a like, um, layabout worker named Roof, or Roofy, yeah. I wonder how you say <laughs> it. I thought it, was, I thought it was short for like Rufus. Roof. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That, that's Let's just call him Rufy. Let's call him Rufy. Rufy. Roof. And, um, and they have a visit from, he's a mailman when we first meet him, right? Andy Lowry. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and I thought it was just going to be like the other plays where the mailman comes and delivers a letter, and that's like a minor character that uh, (laughs) why why did you employ? But I was surprised. Um, We meet him and we meet his sister Jude, who um, Ruth is in love with, but um, she and Sid have an ongoing thing from before Sid was at the war. So Ruth tries to turn, um, uh, tries to mess things up by Sid, and he does that by rekindling a generations-old rivalry between the Hunts and the Lowrys. Um, that's uh, kind of reminiscent, and probably is taken from the um, the Hatfields and McCoys, which was kind of like. In the culture back then, there was a Buster Keaton movie. Pew, pew, so, pew. Um, um, so yeah, and um, and it turns out like Ruth is the villain of the play, um, and and does a bunch of villainous acts. Yeah, he sure is a villain. Um, I will say that I think what surprised me about this play was around. Felt like the seventeenth hour of this thing. Is it sort of clicked to me that maybe the only possible reading I have for this play is yeah. that it's actually about mental illness? At which point I found it sort of compelling that, like, I think <laughs> Roof is like delusional and like, um, and it's a play about mental illness that is handled like with no compassion. Um, I possibly I took it as my what I took it as and maybe redeeming is Ruth is a villain, and that's something that we see in uh, like Shakespeare plays a lot. You know, of course, Macbeth, Lady Macbeth, uh, Iago, um, Plumia and Aaron, and Titus Andronicus, some great villains. And we see it in, of course, like uh, superhero movies. We see it in musical theater, right? You have some villains in musical theater, but in like real theater, um, <laughs> that's something that's kind of been lost. And, and it was interesting for me in that sense, like um, this is like a, a villain play we have this conniving guy who tries to like, you know, like a Bond villain take over the world. In this case, he's like dynamiting a dam. He's he's trying to start like a war between the Hatfields and McCoys. And it's a question of whether or not his conniving plans will succeed or whether they will be foiled in the end. That's true. I mean, and in a lot of the literature, it was somewhere there were reviews. Um, he's compared pretty frequently to Iago. That's a bullshit comparison. <laughs> right. I mean, this guy, Ruf, Rufi, like he was, I feel like he was never presented as anything other than like, like a lack of a better term, a like yellow belly coward, you know? Well, like, it was interesting in the beginning, um, in the beginning, like David and Matt, the grandfather and the father, have nothing good to say about Ruth. And that they're all like, you know, he's a layabout. 
now that Sid is back, we can finally let him go. And the mother is defending him like, oh, poor Roof, you know, he's a religious guy. He, he means well. And to me, I'm reading it like, it's not obvious that Roof is a villain and that she's wrong. And it turns out, yeah, she's wrong. He was a dickhead. Yeah, I mean, they're really mean to him. Like, it, I guess that- like, Really mean to him. Um, I, I sort of feel like they like, it's the only thing that I think is maybe unfortunate is the play is so long that like, they're mean to him for like the first 10 minutes. And then they sort of like, I feel like once he actually starts like being evil, they take him more seriously. Um, and by the end, Maybe. I sort of forget that. Like, um, but there's no, there's none of that given as his justification. Like he doesn't, he's not doing this because he's been made fun of, right? He's yeah. doing it because he's an asshole. Yeah, and he's, they were right to make fun he, of him, right? He's and a religious he's fanatic. And a religious because, fanatic, and he wants to get in uh, Jude's pants. But it's also because, I, I feel like, just like from the start, the play sets it up as like, Sid is, you know, like a hero. He went to actually fight, and this guy didn't fight. He had something wrong with his belly, and he's, yeah. He, he wasn't given anything other than that. And like... Well, he... Had, he he didn't find on purpose, right? He like Right. But like to me, the author was just like, fuck this guy. Yeah. And it's like it it was just like, yeah, the whole time is but I feel like with when you're mentioning like villain plays, like well written ones, we're given paths to either understand them or like aspects to kind of um, like find this ourselves. Is not, this is not a well written one. I think no. You know, some of the best superhero movies have well-written villains, but a lot don't. And I'd say a lot of the musical theater villains are not well-rounded people either. They're just like, like the, the, are you talking the villain. About the, are you talking about the Phantom of the Opera? Sure. Um, He's misunderstood, bro. Right? Um, I mean, ah, Annie... I'm making bad... Okay, stay in your lane, folks. Let the homosexual... <laughs> Take over. Um, I'm not even sure what you're talking about. <laughs> because this computer is filled with some of the most complex anti-heroes of all time, including Sweeney Todd and Aaron Burr. Um, is Sweeney Todd the two? The uh, they're almost protagonist villains. That's a different thing. Yeah, I think the villain in like Annie, the lady, the like the orphan person okay, in Annie. Yeah, I think no, I think she's really good. The right? most compelling character in the yeah. entire show. Um, it can about, be done well. But we're talking about Miss Hannigan. Not. I think she has a first name and I'm forgetting it. Um, she should be, like, in a production that is done well, she should be both, like, cartoonishly evil and you should be like, holy shit, this poor woman is, like, trapped in a house with, like, 15 to 20, like, small children and all she wants to do is get laid and she can't. Oh, that's I mean, nice. We, I, I guess I never thought about, about Miss like, Hannigan that way. No, like, you know what I mean? I'd say that. Miss Hannigan is a sexual being. <laughs> she's got needs. <laughs> yeah, she does. I mean, we could talk about how good a character Iago is, how good the character Aaron and Richard III are, but like, 
but sorry, not to That's, not to jump onto it, but rude, like right, right, but like Iago, you kind of understand what drives him. Like it's like jealousy or ambition or whatever. But what drives this dude? Well, at some point, I mean, even that. I mean, Richard the Third and Aaron. Well, let's bring like, it up. I think actually, I have a better comparison. What about okay. um, Abigail Williams? In Crucible. in Crucible, that's a yeah. good villain. Yeah. Um. Like, she is a villain. I think she's also a character that in the last 10 years has gotten, like, sort of a, like, uh, like a cultural sort of, like, reassessment, right? Like, um, in terms yeah. of what... And in your production of Hellbent, you would, uh, you would play up the mental illness of Ruth and kind of make him a more sympathetic character and a more well-rounded understood character. I, mean, I don't that, know if right? it's possible with the script, but I think, like, there was a moment where I was, okay, oh, this is maybe my, going to be my favorite episode. Um, sit back, buckle your seatbelts, folks. So, in my cultural touchstone that I bring to all literary analysis, um, season three of Real Housewives of New York, <laughs> there is, like, the most fantastic three-episode arc called, um, what I call Scary Island, and by fans it's known as Scary Island, where the housewives go to like St. John's. On this trip is all the housewives except for two, Jill and Luann. That doesn't really matter for this story. But with Was that, Bethany it, there? Bethany was there. It's very important. <laughs> Bethany's there and pregnant and her father just passed away. Um, oh my gosh. God bless. And her enemy, um, well her, yeah, her enemy, um, Kelly Ben Simone is on this trip. And Kelly Ben Simone like picks at Bethany. And has picked up Bethany for two seasons. And all the other women are sort of like, I don't know, Kelly's sort of nice, she's weird. I don't know why you always get in fights. There's a point to this, Christopher. Um, and so, but eventually, Kelly fucking unravels. Like, she, like, everyone sees it. Like, and Bethany's been saying it for two years, like, this Kelly girl, she's not nice, she's actually sort of crazy, like, we need to be careful of her. And Kelly just shows her ass. And by that I mean that she's like, actually has a nervous breakdown. And at some point in the evening of on Scary Island, the women are like, oh, we actually can't engage with this person. Like, we have to sort of, like, separate ourselves from her. And, like, like she isn't, like, well. In a way, <laughs> that, that was how I sort of felt about Ruth. In that I was like, oh, this actually for me is not fun anymore. Like, he is not a fun villain. Like, there is something, um, like, he is, like, he needs help. Um, and, like, I actually don't think that, like, the stuff that he's doing or thinking is, like, I think it's pathological, and I think that, like, um, it's actually very sad. <laughs> um, so I found Ruth sympathetic, and I'm sure that, like, that is not the playwright's intention. Um, and, I mean, he has the, he has him essentially, like, dying um, by drowning um, in the sort of, like, biblical ending. But well, I mean, we don't know that. God is going to judge him. It is a biblical engine. That this is that's one no, no, thing. No. Am I am I wrong in reading the ending that at the end end he's like, wait, there is no God, and just kind of like drops the whole thing. Is that right? I mean, that sounds like plausible. his his final monologue. So I think the only thing with the idea of like mental illness is like he doesn't. The play doesn't end with oh, him. Yeah in the ecstasy or the hysteria of his like belief, he like drops it. <laughs> so like, yeah, I just felt like it was he like, curses a, God. 
He says yeah, there's like, no God. But then he curses God. And yeah. If there is a God, he doesn't have any sympathy for people like me. So good Damn you, God. If, if they is, he ain't got no use for folks like me. He's for them that's on top. That's what he is. Stage direction. He suddenly rises on his toes as if impelled by some power outside himself and hurls defiance towards heaven. Damn you, God. He gradually collapses, muttering brokenly in a fit of terror. Now I've done it. I've committed the unpardonable sin. Then he screams hysterically as the curtain falls. Help, help. Come here, everybody. Come here. See, I don't know. I think that if someone who, like, I don't think he, like, I don't think he gives it up entirely. Because I think he feels very guilty for, like, the, I think. It is interesting how much, like, his religion and religion plays a part in the play. That was, that seemed, I mean, I know the scopes trial is uh 1920s right the uh evolutionary yeah um and so maybe you know that's something that's being talked about debated and a kind of first like you know post-world war one crisis of faith clearly no but but see i think i think the problem with it and i don't think either of you disagree is like it's just a poorly written fucking play no i think we're talking Me, about the like, themes, but yeah, we're right. But if good. like, but it, it's like such, uh, it w- it's like just dog food on a plate for an audience, you know. Like, if it was, if you switched it, where like he is a returning war hero that had this crisis of faith, you know what I mean? But this guy, from the moment he You're comes, talking on about stage, Rambo, <laughs> right? Yeah, Rufy Rambo. It's it's where. This is where Rambo comes from, basically. I could see uh, Sylvester Stallone in that role. Oh, dear. <laughs> um, I wonder if it's, like, worth, like, so one of the things I found particularly egregious about this play um, was, like, just, it's, like, we were talking about Icebound, I think, last week, and how, um, you know, maybe there's sort of a fuck you to the place he's from, but, Chris, you said that, um, might be a fuck you to the place he's from, but they're not stock characters. They're like well-rounded. And this is just like, <laughs> oh my God. Like, just like so painfully like um, cruel to like its subjects and so like apathetic to their portrayal and like just cartoonishly like these cartoons. It was terrible. It was absolutely fucking terrible. Um, he's maybe sympathetic to their lost causeism and racism. Oh yeah, I was also gonna like this. I picked up on the theme of like um, continued continued casual racism. Is um, I, this I mean, this is a, this was a casual racism. This yeah, is like, this was right. just straight up like Confederacy racism. Yeah, yeah. But Holds I did up. find it. I did find it interesting though. Like Anna Christie, kind of like I feel like went for some type of verite with like how the people talked and like the the lived in nature of it and to me this is like a real cheap fucking copy like this to me is like a knockoff of like what i does that comparing this to anna like no 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 but i just mean like to me it's like something really i mean something yeah. really good comes out and then like a little later comes like the knockoffs of it you know what i mean yeah i wonder if that's more about convention of the like i feel like that must be a like a convention of playwriting like, I feel like that's like... To write I, in dialect. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I did read... Patrick Hughes was like, 
oh, that Swedish play, like, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to do that, but. Shit, he is. No, he, uh, I mean, he was writing how Southern people talk. He's from North Carolina. He, like, he's trying to capture that dialect. No, that dude, no, that dude's not from North Carolina, man. He is Fuck from North guy. Carolina. Fuck that guy. No, he's not. He's probably not of the class that these right. characters this, are, but he's right. from like, he's from North Carolina. Right. This shit. Yeah. This play made me fucking sick. <laughs> so, uh, so, what didn't you like about this play? I I do I do feel I I do think it's interesting that this is the first play that's kind of come up with the like super crazy plot twists that are like, you know, and so I start imagining how did they pull this shit off on stage? It would be quite a production, wouldn't it? I mean, the storm at the end, the... I mean, it's like, uh, this one, like we've talked about, we've had shows that have been like not done recently or like not, have been hard to find. Like, Did you find any? This has like never been done. Like, I, I like, is there even a movie version? Is there like a... I think there was a movie version. Yeah, yeah, there was a. There was a movie version because the woman from uh, one of the witches from Wizard of Oz was in it. Oh yeah, yeah. This does feel like actually they took a silent movie and were like, let's make a play about that. Um, Like I feel like I saw there was a um, there was a reading of it at some point because when I was looking for a copy of the play, I came across. And notice in 2014, like a reading. Oh dear. Yeah. But yeah, but no, I, I think Christ. I think it is. A, I, I think it is an apt comparison of like uh, saying it's kind of like a silent film that was turned into a play because, like, right? It's so frenetic and just nothing based in reality. It was just yeah. It wasn't the hero movie, right? Very deadly do right. Um, yeah, yeah, it was kind of like a really terrible episode of uh, Bullwinkle and Rocky. So, what what was your favorite part of the play? <laughs> no part of it. For me, um, that speech I talked about, I think at the end of uh, Act Three, you have like a long monologue by Ruth, and he like he does like kind of like talk to the audience that you will see in Shakespearean villains where he's like, this is my master plan. I'm going to do these villainous acts. Um, I like that kind of. Yeah, that's how I felt. Everyone else, uh, say I mean, I, I guess I. It's it's so interesting that um, I'm actually really happy the first episode, John, that you talked about World War One, because I because we we got it last week and we getting we're getting it a little bit this week, and I wonder mm-hmm. like how how much longer we will get from World War One. I mean, some, it's interesting that we haven't had any mention of the Spanish flu. It's interesting to us in this current. God, I wonder how many terrible plays are going to like. Are like yeah, a... I mean, what do you think the chances are that in the what is it six years after the after COVID there won't be a Pulitzer Prize winning play that mentions? Right, but let, let me say let me say Go the on. interesting thing to me is like, 
you know, you, you had this question about like uh, portrayals of World War One. I. I wonder when the first actual um, portrayal of people either involved in war or something that has something to say about the human condition will actually show up. So I, I feel don't like know this, if it went. Well, I mean, we can. Maybe. I'm not sure. I, I'm, I'm interested to look for, for something like that because I feel like this one was another one that was like, nah, buddy. And I mean, yeah. there was like, bad. Oh, I'm curious about, I mean, I think that's what's interesting about this project, right? Is how many, um, like, I guess we'll be able to, maybe not World War One, but like World War II, uh, Vietnam, right? Korea, or uh, like, or Iraq, right? Like, they're in like our sort of current stuff. I think we'll be able to see like, does that change? Um, I'm also like wondering if any or how many, like are almost all of the plays written sort of in present, in the present day. Um, I guess definitely not George and not some of the musicals, not Hamilton, but um, all the plays that we've been reading have been more or less set. Well, I wonder, does a crucible win? You mentioned no. that earlier. No, no, that uh, guy. Uh, no way. I I would imagine. Yeah, no. Death of a Salesman wins. I would have thought the Crucible would have won. Um, well, oh, sorry. The, the one point I wanted to make is like the the depiction of war is like another fakeoid. But to me, the sentiment so he regarding was, he was in World War One. Really? Well, you know what? Yeah. Fuck him. Like, to me, what did ring true was the racism. Like, like the one thing that would actually be interesting for him to, to explore was just, like, thrown in there to, like, make it real or some shit like that. And I was just, I think some about it, I was just like, dude, no way, dude. Uh, yeah. So, uh, who would you want to be in this show? I'd want to be the fucking water that comes to kill all them. Uh, I think, I mean, if I, like an acting challenge or like an acting, I think like... Ruth Playing water, just, like, way harder. Ruth, like, <laughs> use the scenery. I think I'd love, I think Ruth would be very fun to play. Uh, there's a horse, so we could have someone be the rear end of a horse. <laughs> um, it was, well, um... I mean, are we communicating? Why was this so bad? It wasn't. Well, no, it, it, I, I, I think it's interesting because there's been, I think it's so funny that like, to me, if this was like the first winner and then the other plays, I probably wouldn't feel so disgusted. But like, I feel like the other plays that really actually captured something about the human condition or like, human frailty in all characters this is just like yeah this is like usa today garbage theater uh i did read part of the show off the one that was robbed and it was a significantly better not great but significantly better playlist and oh sorry yeah and it was uh it was very philly like lots and lots of mentions of philadelphia places and uh and things yeah, it's really too bad we didn't get to read that, the Pulitzer Prize. And we're I mean, not allowed to, again, we can only... Isn't that the whole point of Philadelphia, to, like, come in second place and then bitch about it for the next hundred fucking years? Or win and, and be relegated, be robbed. 
So George, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I mean, George Kelly wins in a couple of years. We're about to read. It's the like the story. Patriots. Yeah, we are going to read. But I bet. I mean, I I am thinking that that George Kelly play isn't going to be as good. It's going to be like. Um, you know, when they give an Oscar to someone who should have won like five years before. Um, we'll see. I mean, what I was going to say, though, is to be fair to my own bias, is like we all did know that this play had like a sort of like iffy uh, like path to the prize. We um, did. I was trying to like this play and... I didn't I didn't even think about that when I read it. You know what I it mean? Was I not wasn't good. like... No, it just wasn't good from the fucking from the, first from the beginning. Like the dialogue is terrible. Like the, the dialect <laughs> is bad. The dialogue between characters is not is not even like a semblance of how people talk on stage. Um, at least really, like, it's pretty confusing. Um, I don't know if I was confused. Maybe at the beginning, but like, yeah, and. The things that were interesting on examine. Yeah, there, there, there was no life force in this play. There was no electricity. There was no. There was water. Um, I guess maybe this isn't unusual yet. Maybe it's pre like gay panic. Anytime where there's just like, an, like there's like openly enthusiastic male friendship, I'm like pretty happy. Oh, um, uh, that was. There, like, I mean, before they had the fight, there was like I thought Andy and Sid had like a very kind, loving relationship. Which yeah, and then they got cool. the fight, which was then like so easy, weirdly presented. I did see that. that yeah, I said there was that Buster Keaton movie about the uh, Hatfield and McCoys because I wondered when that rivalry was, and it was like eighteen uh, ninety something like that. Um, when there was like a big shootout, it went on for a while, but it probably was like really in the public consciousness then, and so he was going. For that, and this is that rivalry is hinted at that. I mean, it, it's a spectacle. It, you know, it would have been a night at the theater. You would have felt like you saw something, probably. I mean, if they could have, like, you know, it could have been like Ten Commandments if they had their flood. Um, so my dream production humanizes roof. Um, yeah. Do you have a dream production? Is it like? Yeah, all black people. Definitely. Just to do that to him, but um, I mean, we talked about we've been doing these uh, excerpts of uh, of scenes from the plays and having actors act out the excerpts and and. Um, actor I first thought of as Ruth was a African American. I don't know if that maybe just because he's from the South and I'd seen him play like a preacher guy. No, when I when I was reading this, I was I'm not interested yeah, I'd I'd be more interested in like doing like the racist parts with like black actors. I'm wondering if um another like like I wonder if this play could be updated or like if you set the play in like 2007 um because i don't know if there's anything that like dates it too too hard i mean the horses and the stuff but like the dam i like that but like uh, i mean to me the interesting the thing i liked about it was it feels like 
a play written and about the South in uh, 1920s. And it's not very good, but can you imagine how just like un a historical, like unrepresentative of how people were and terrible a play written about the South in the 1920s would be now? How like terribly in inaccurate its depiction of racism would be? How like yeah, it would just be bad, and it wouldn't it wouldn't give you a picture of what it was like then. And and this is not a good play, but I feel like it's a historical document. Uh, so I guess because we know why this play won the Pulitzer, um, pure nepotism. Um, uh, the only last question we have is where does this fall in our rankings? Um, I think bottom. Yeah, so we're at, I think, let me look at, I, I started to write this down. So yeah, it's number six for us, for all of us. Is this a six play? Yeah. Yep. Does anyone, um, yeah. So that would be, uh, for you, it would uh, unseat Icebound as the worst. <laughs> so the, the last two weeks i'm maybe saying that like the early mid 1920s are not a golden age of american I mean, theater to be fair your your rankings are top two eugene o'neill and then the rest in order hmm. uh 1918 1921 1923 and this um and then for this this unseats miss lulu bet for me why don't you uh, tell us what we're reading next week, then? I would love to. Um, so we are reading a play by Sidney Howard. I want to get the name right. Um, what I do know, what I was interested in, is that it has been turned into a very pop, a very important and influential musical called The Most Happy Fella. Um, do you know what that is, Christopher? I've heard of musicals. I have not heard of this musical. It's a Frank Lesser musical, and it's um, often uh, it's done by a lot of operas. It's people really have a lot of very strong feelings about it. Um, Are they positive feelings? Yeah, yeah. It's um, it's a critic friend. Uh, it's a critic friend's like favorite musical. Um, hmm. um, and so the play is called "They Know They Knew What They Wanted" um, by Sidney Howard. Um, I'm pretty excited. I like the title. That sounds yeah. cool. Yeah, it's a good title. Um, and so we'll read that next week. Um, uh, yeah. Any parting I think my favorite title so far has been Icebound. I like Why Mary. Why Mary is pretty classic. Yeah, I think I like the Why Mary still. All right. Well, um, we're going to go out with the top song from 1924, which is much more classic um, than the play uh, we have just reading, which is uh, a little bit of a George Gershon Rhapsody in Blue. So uh, say goodnight, nice. folks. Take care, honey. Goodnight, folks. Night, folks.